Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the upcoming. Doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, it doesn't matter. We're here to talk about all the best and the brightest as they make their way to their dream careers. I'm your host, Jonathan Carr. Join me as we have a spectacular conversation with an equally spectacular person. You ready? Let's go. Hello, world, and welcome to The Upcoming, the perfect place to catch the best and brightest on their way to the top. Joining me now for The Upcoming's 46th episode, straight out of Rochester, New York. She is an alum from Purchase College with a bachelor in creative writing, just like myself. And she is in every way just an artist in the field of writing. She has been a fiction reader for Wild Roof Journal, and now she is with Bo Editions in Rochester, New York, where she is an intern. She has taught students in the in the art of writing and has you know written some fantastic work herself. So you know, time only tells just how much greater she'll become. So that being said, just a writer and an, uh, an editor, a mentor, just Everything amazing. I bring to you the grace, Misty Yarnell. How's it going, Misty? Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, Misty, in the upcoming, I always allow my guests to introduce themselves. So, please indulge us. Who and what exactly are you? Great question. Um, so, again, my name is Misty Yarnell. I'm a writer, editor, and teaching artist. I'm based in Rochester. So a lot of what I do is teaching either Zoom workshops or I teach a lot of in-person workshops through different libraries, through homeschool co-ops. So a lot of just kind of freelance writing work. I also have been stage managing at a local theater, which has been a really fun experience. Um, But professionally, I work for the Hudson Valley Writers Center, which is located in Sleepy Hollow, New York. Luckily, they let me work remote, so I don't need to be in Sleepy Hollow. But um, that's just been an incredible opportunity because it's on my own schedule. I do it whenever I've got some time, and that gives me the freedom to do more of the teaching artistry and the stage managing and other things that I love. So, so far, so good, I guess. (laughs) So, that's, yeah, so far, so good. I love it. So, yeah, Misty. I just can't think you are a writer in the like capital states of creative writing, New York. So when did you decide, like, let's just take it back a little bit, Misty, like all the way to when you were first starting out, when did you decide that, you know, creative writing was a path you want to take? That's a great question. Um, actually it started when I was in elementary school. Uh, I was in third grade. And I wrote a story. It was like five pages in my notebook. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so I just kept writing from then. And if you ask anyone that I went to elementary school with, they would tell you that I always had my notebook and I was kind of like hovered over it, making sure nobody else could read what I was writing. Uh, I was at a very small school. I grew up in Watertown, New York. So very small class. Wasn't really a lot of opportunity to be a writer. Uh, we leaned a lot into sports. We leaned a lot into, you know, music performance. But writing itself, most people just viewed as a chore and it, it wasn't anything fun. It was just you write your essays for school and that's it. Um, so it was really hard to find a sense of community when I was growing up because nobody really enjoyed the thing that I enjoyed the most. Um, luckily, there were a couple organizations that I found while I was growing up that my mom helped me find. Um, I did a writing contest called the Echoes Writing Contest, which is through the Rev Theater Company. They're in Auburn, New York. And that was a really empowering experience, not only to submit my writing, but they showcased it and they accepted it in their contest. And that just kind of, you know, built endurance for me to keep writing. And then when I got to about 14, 15 years old, I had written a novel, or at least I called it a novel. I don't know if it was. I don't know what the word count was on it at this point, but I wrote a full novel and I went to my mom and I said, listen, I don't know what to do with this. I just keep writing. Nobody wants to help me with my writing. There's nobody who has that kind of time. And she ended up finding an organization in Rochester called Writers and Books that had summer youth writing workshops. And luckily I had the opportunity to come and take summer classes 
And really just finding that sense of community of, wow, there are places specifically for writers to come and write and build community and perfect their craft. Like, it just blew my mind. And so once I graduated high school, I moved to Rochester. I studied creative writing and I just tried to get myself in any door that I could to be around people who had similar passions that I did. Fantastic story, but... I couldn't help but think about just how much your passions and your sense of community was like, well, maybe not your passions, your sense of community was hindered by, you know, just the curriculum in high school where students just felt uninterested in, in writing, just seeing it as more of a chore than anything else. I can't help but just think about how like just the K through 12, you know, education just feels, just seems like, like it's hindering really like artistic passion and just a drive to want to, you know, take things in a more creative sort of way. And so with you, so I'm happy, you know, that you were able to, you know, continue your love for writing and just keep being able to do it and find your sense of community. But I really wish you'd been able to see it like, and just growing it from just being in school. Cause that should be like the one place where you, you know, have that further built on. So how do you think, um, in your own opinion, like, um, how do you think schools can change in like inspiring like art and creative writing among students? That's a really good question. Uh, I wish I had the perfect answer for you, but I think really a lot of what I do, the teaching artistry that I do, either I do a lot of homeschool co-ops, I do summer camps. What I'm noticing is that a lot of kids are almost afraid to be creative with this fear of messing up or not following directions. They might ask a lot of just follow-up questions on what exactly are you asking me to write? What What am I supposed to be creating? I don't understand. And I think that that's a real problem is that kids are just so afraid to think outside the box because they've been taught they have to follow these very specific directions. And if they don't do that, they're not going to get a good grade. And Part of the work that I do as a teaching artist is I try to encourage them to think outside the box. I try to encourage them to explore questions that they have, curiosities, things that they don't understand that maybe they don't feel comfortable asking other people in their lives. If they can find ways to channel that curiosity into their writing, no matter what form, maybe they're journaling about themselves, maybe they're writing a piece of fiction where a character has you know, a similar question or struggle that they're going through, whatever it may be. I think that writing is just a great way to explore the things that you don't understand in life. But because kids are taught that it's a chore and that there's one way to do it and this is how you get a good grade, they don't necessarily know what kind of opportunities that writing can give them to help them understand their lives and and be empathetic and understand their friendships, right? So I I don't know if that answered your question, really, but I think just allowing more space in the classroom where kids can have projects that they can be a little bit more creative with instead of just this is the test you take and this is the grade you got because of that test. You know, it it does does make a lot of sense because schools always do teach your kids like there's one way of doing it and you always got to be like compliant and just completely focused on that one way of handling it. So it is definitely a disservice to, um, to kids. It's cause there's never, we both know there's never just one way of writing. There's never just one style. That's why we have, you know, poetry. That's why we have flash fiction. That's why we have, you know, screenwriting and playwriting. There's just so many ways of telling a story and so many ways of just being passionate. That's, it's really just about like how the student sees their story the um, in the best in the best uh, best way possible, I guess. But um, yeah, no. So you answered the question uh, perfectly fine. And so while you were <laughs> while you were building on your passions and you know continuing to improve in uh, your writing abilities, what were some let's say flaws you saw um, early on that you knew you had to uh, correct or some, you know, 
yeah, it's just some, some flaws or just something that you just wanted to improve upon or correct. In my own writing, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that one thing that I struggled with was consistency in writing. When I was younger, I was writing every single day. And then as I got older and I had a full-time job and I was in college, it was more so writing for the sake of the assignment versus writing because this is my writing time, right? And it's actually kind of funny because I remember early years in college hearing other students talk about, you know, their their spring break or their summer vacation, whatever it was, and say, oh, I didn't write anything. You know, I've just, I was burnt out. And I kind of judged them at that time. I was like, what do you mean you didn't write anything? You're a writer. Like, why didn't you write anything? And then I started going into these breaks and writing and feeling so hypocritical because I was just judging people who were doing the same thing. And then I felt like, lesser of a writer because I wasn't writing every single day. I was taking breaks when things just weren't coming out the way I wanted them to, or if a piece didn't feel ready for me to approach. And after having a lot of conversations with a lot of different people, both students, professors, just other people I knew in the community, I realized that, again, there's not one way to write. There's not one way to be a writer. And There is a fine line between taking a break and just giving up on something, right? And I think that for me, I've had to learn how to create a writing routine that works for my life. That, you know, maybe I'm not writing every day, but if I say I'm going to write on Tuesday mornings from 10 until noon, you bet I need to be writing from 10 until noon on Tuesday, right? Making sure that you're finding ways to hold yourself accountable. Because when when you're out of school, when you don't have that writing community who's waiting for your pages, you're the only one making sure you're doing that work. And if you're not doing the work, then what are you doing, right? Um, So long story short, I think one thing that I really needed to do was to hold myself accountable, but to also have grace with myself and not compare myself to what everybody else's method is because everyone has to find a method that works for themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Missy, you and I share that, um, share that exact same problem because I myself struggled with consistency so much because it's hard, you know, it's hard to write when, you know, the outside world calls your attention all the time. And that's why you got to admire people like, um, like Stephen King who were able to just take like, few hours every single day to do nothing but writing. Uh, but, you know, another thing I think about, too, was even when, if, even if you're consistent, there's still that poison of writer's block where you're just stuck trying to figure out what to what to put in next. So it's it's a serious pain and uh, we didn't have to put up with it, but we do. So, Misty, as you've been battling writer's block how have you found ways to uh, to fight it so to me writer's block is is my brain telling me something right if i try to write something and i either don't know what to say or don't know how to say it or i do work on writing and i just look at it and i say this is not what i want for this piece i interpret writer's block as the piece that i'm working on right now needs a break And I will close the file and I won't touch it sometimes for a few months, sometimes for a week. You know, it depends on the project. I've definitely, especially with the play that I'm working on right now, there were many times that I, you know, I knew I was going to write this play. This play was in my brain. I knew I was going to write it. And I would sit down to start it. I'd type a page or two and I'd say, this this is not the play. And I'd put it away. And then I'd pick it up in another few weeks or in a month or whatever the time frame may be. And eventually the play was written and I have it and I'm happy with it. But I think the important thing to know, thank you. <laughs> I think the important thing for me is that if I am consciously saying, this isn't it, I'm not ready to write this, I need to put it aside, that I have another project to work on in that meantime. 
it's good. I mean, I'm still working on it because it's in my brain and actively I'll be thinking about it at the grocery store, on my drive, wherever I'm going. But having something else to write that's a completely different form, maybe it's fiction, maybe it's some journaling, something else to still keep that creative juice flowing and consciously saying, I'm going to come back to that, but I'm not ready yet, I think is the best way for me, at least. Again, everybody has their own way. Everybody does, but you've you found your way. And having different projects like definitely does help when you're able to just go back to one and to the other. And because most artists, you have to like have it all like in your head first before you can really put it into writing. Because putting like just trying to, there's so many writers out there that just try to just wing it. And just try to like think whatever I'm planning doesn't matter. Just write it all out first. Just make it up on the spot. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, I mean, okay, all right. But yeah, it's it. You're right. It does all stay in your head. You're you are still working on it no matter what. So even if it takes you like a few months to get back to it after you worked on something else, when you're when you come back to it, you definitely have more to say and you have more to write so it does help um so i want to just um go a little more your writing i want to transition to your um to your work as a teaching uh, artist so you know you are first i should have asked this from the start but who were some of your biggest influences uh in creative writing oh boy um For me, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint a certain author or a certain playwright, um, especially because I don't feel like I follow people. I feel like I follow the work itself. I'm a strong believer in kind of separating the artist from the art. Um, There are definitely specific plays or specific novels that stand out to me as ones I admire. For example, One of my favorite novels is 19 Minutes by Jodi Picoult. That one is about a school shooting. And it just kind of tore me apart while I was reading it because there are moments in that book where you sympathize with a school shooter and you just feel so awful about yourself for having these feelings. Um, And do I ever feel like I'm going to write a book or a short story about a school shooting? No, probably not. But the fact that that book gave me such kind of feelings that I couldn't understand while I was reading it. It really inspired me to say, Ooh, I want to make my readers go through that same thing. Right. Um, so that's one that stood out to me in terms of novels. Um, I also write a lot of plays. I, I guess Annie Baker is a playwright. I do follow quite a bit. I've read some of her plays. Um, I've been reading a lot of plays about faith. So like I read this play, The Christians, that's a little bit experimental in structure. Um, The Whale, A Bright New Boise, like things that that are about faith, but it doesn't feel like they're trying to convert you in any way. It's just kind of forces you to question your own beliefs and why you believe them. yeah, I like to read things that that make me ask questions about myself, and that's how I like to write. That is fascinating. Rework said, "Leave you asking questions about yourself." It's really work like that. It's work like that that really has that makes you ask questions that you end up remembering the best. I think that's why it works like you know from authors like George Orwell or um, I'm trying to think of what I was also telling um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Some people just really have you thinking about like, hmm, what does it say about me or the world I live in or just the folks I talk to? It's and so it really just gets me, brings me back to the act to just the topic of classic novels, because we've had books that have lasted for hundreds of years. And even after the author's long dead, their work still lives on. We're still reading about them in school. So, Misty, besides 
you know, making us question ourselves. How do you think an author is able to just stand the test of time? I think that a lot of books, like you're saying, the classic historical novels that we're still reading, really were just the right book at the right time. I think that there's a lot of really, really terrific books that have probably been lost in history because their specific subject matter or what that character is struggling with wasn't right on for that time period. And I'm sure it's still true today. I mean, you know, Harry Potter became this fantastic series that everybody knows. Is Harry Potter the best written book in the world? Well, that depends on the viewer, right? Some people might say yes. Some people might say no. But I'm sure there were other books that were written with these magical qualities or, you know, with whatever it may be, similar characteristics that didn't necessarily kind of hit the mark the way that that one did. It really, to me, I think it's just the right book in the right person's hands and not necessarily talking about the literature itself. The right place at the right time. But there were authors who were ahead of their time. Franz Kafka, Laura Neil Hurston. It's it's so sad when those authors are like ahead of their time and their work is not accepted at their time and are only recognized after they're dead. It's truly a shame. But still man the work still managed to survive and we still know about it. Is it is that something you ever um, fear, Misty? Just being um, writing something and it's uh, ahead of its time. It's not recognized. Um, you know, once it's out? Not so much. And I think it's because when I write, I'm not really writing for an audience. I'm never trying to to market what I'm exploring to what I think other people are exploring or what other people care about. I think naturally by staying true to myself and my curiosities that I'll find a reader eventually. But if I tried to take my writing and and play this guessing game and predict what other people are going to want, then I'm not going to write something that I want to write or that I'm proud of. I'm going to be lost in this maze of trying to win the lottery, in a sense. Um, So, no, I think the fact that I write for me and I have enough faith that eventually someone else is going to find it and relate to it is what keeps me going. Perfect. Perfect, Misty. I love that answer. Now let's move on to you teaching new generations of writers. So what are some of the, what do you think are some of the best perks of like being a mentor, being a, a teaching artist? So the thing I love the most about it, I would say, is that, as you already know, when I was growing up, I didn't feel like I had anybody who was encouraging me to explore things in this way, right? And so when I'm working, I mean, I I teach kids, I teach teens, I teach adults, I teach all over the place. But when I'm teaching, I'm really trying to encourage people to ask the questions that they're afraid to ask and explore the things that they're scared of. And One phrase that we've talked about in teaching artist meetings that I've been in is that we don't promise anybody a safe space. We can't ever promise a a space is safe because I can't control what every person does when they leave that space or what they bring into that space. We can set ground rules. We can follow them the best that we can, but I can't control any other person necessarily. What I can do is try to create a brave space. And that is a space where people feel comfortable enough to ask those questions, to write about things that they're a little iffy about, and that ideally we all are there in the same boat and that we're ready to listen and we're ready to talk about a piece objectively, not push down this writer and say, well, you worded that wrong or that wasn't okay, but to have a conversation about it and say, you know, I see that you're exploring this. These are the things that I didn't understand, or these are the things I had questions about. And then it becomes a dialogue and not just accusing people of things or pushing anybody down, right? Um, So yes, I'm teaching a writing class. Ideally, our writing is going to get better by the end of it. 
But really what's important in the workshop is making sure that everybody knows social skills, how to give feedback, how to be constructive, and how to support each other. Yeah. And criticizing is always best to give constructive uh, criticism. Like, please don't don't make somebody hate writing because your criticism was so harsh. You're just you're just being insulting. It's basically don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk, folks. Uh, well, I always tell people that if if something in the writing stood out to you because you didn't like it, you need to communicate that in a curiosity or in a question. And that shows the writer that you're still invested in the work and you're asking this question or bringing this up because you want the writer, the, the writing to get better. And if it's just like, oh, I don't really like reading about aliens. That's not helpful. <laughs> like, like the subject matter doesn't matter. It's the core of the story that we're looking at. So if you word it as a question or a curiosity, then it's still positive language on something that you don't think is working. It's exactly what you said. Talking down to someone, talking negatively, insulting them, that's not helping anybody. No, it's not even helping you. It's just, no. It's like, why would I Why would I give anything to you? I'm just going to talk like this. It's, yeah, you say it does help that you've you know been in plenty of uh, workshops and uh, meetings yourself where you're able to share what you had and uh, get that sort of criticism. So you're able to um, better like teach that um, the you know basically review etiquette to other um, to other students. I remember you and I were um, in, or in class together, and we would give uh, we give our own workshop uh, feedback. And so when you were looking at, um, when you were looking at, um, different work and I don't, I don't even want to think about my work right now. I mean, you were just giving out different, uh, work, uh, and just being, giving your critiques of it. What were, just take a, just tell us about like you would, uh, you yourself would critique their work. Never mind, um, how you're teaching to others, but just how you built upon your communication in, uh, in criticism. Yeah. So when I'm reading someone else's work, I'm always taking notes as I go. Um, and depending on the format, if I have a physical copy, I'm writing on it. If it's a word document, it's either track changes or I've got another document where I'm making notes as I go. Um, and then obviously, I mean, if there's anyone who's listening who isn't familiar with workshop structure, usually the writer doesn't speak and everyone else in the room just kind of brings up things they noticed um, in the writing, general feedback about the piece. And then the writers welcome to ask questions afterwards. Um, but I think that just remembering again, that even if you didn't like the piece or even if it's um, offensive in some way, or if it's, whatever it may be, that the whole point of the workshop is for us all to learn. We're all learning, even though we're giving one person feedback. We're learning how to communicate with each other. We're learning how to look at something objectively and remove it from the person and look at the context of the piece. And if someone does write something offensive in that piece, not assuming that they meant it poorly, bringing up that, yeah, a certain communities of people might find this offensive for XYZ reason, that's valuable for them to know. But I think that's how we all learn how to look after each other, saying, hey, this could stand out to someone. Oh, shoot, that's not what I meant. Then we learn how to use language better, right? Um, so actively engaging with the text, making sure that it's this objective, like trying to make this piece of writing better in this moment. Um, yeah, I think I think that's pretty much a good overview. <laughs> yeah, excellent points. Because always taking notes, always looking at how someone could do better, how someone's doing good. Yeah, it's always just keep them keep them going, keep them in um, a much more much more aware sort of path, so they're more aware of what they're saying <laughs> that they're doing and. So we, so you understand how I give good p feedback, but you also seen like how people will, you've seen how people will, you know, be, you know, 
just sort of non like compliance or just sort of disruptive sort of, uh, and also in the ways we talked about sort of just poor with their, their criticism being talking down and everything. I know you've had moments where you've had to deal with, uh, some trouble with, uh, your classes. Now I'm not going to like, I want you to like call anybody out and or say any names or anything, but how have you dealt with like, let's say, let's call it like conflict within the um, classes that you teach? So whenever I'm teaching a workshop, I always, at the beginning of the workshop, we talk about what we need in this workshop to, to feel safe, to feel comfortable sharing our work, to feel brave. A lot of the times I like using like big post-it notes if we're doing a workshop in person and I write on that post-it note, what do I need to work my best in this workshop? And then we have a discussion about it. So it's not like, oh, Misty said she needs music to play. It's all anonymous. You write things down and we talk about it as a group. And then we talk about, you know, if someone's sharing something, we're not just listening. You're actively listening. You're act, you're engaging with the text. You're trying to understand. You're not dismissing something early because you didn't like a certain thing or, or whatever it may be. We want to make sure that everyone is engaging with the text, that everybody understands the correct way of giving feedback. And I think, too, a lot of my role in this dynamic is that even if I'm not necessarily teaching a lesson on craft, I am still moderating and facilitating. So if somebody does kind of cross that line where maybe they're starting to give a negative piece of feedback or they're talking to the writer in an inappropriate way during the workshop, it's my job to to mediate that and to make sure that everybody remembers the rules that we set from the beginning, that we all agreed that we were going to behave this way, not because Misty said so, but because that's what the group collectively identified as what they need to feel comfortable sharing their work. So that's what we need to follow. Right. And then I, I'm not the bad guy because this is what we all agreed on. I'm just making sure that we're enforcing it. All right. That, that makes sense. You know, just helping the, the class come together as a community and really say what makes will make them feel comfortable sharing their work, not bring out, you know, any insecurities, any doubts, any fears like that they, they feel um, during this workshop. Because this is all about this is all about just learning to appreciate people and learning to share your passion, share what story you have and just have fun with it. You know, because life's too short to not enjoy doing what you love. So, it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there you go. That's how you, um, that's how you work a classroom, just treat it as a community. But uh, let me ask you, because we, you know, we both went to Purchase College, same um, degree, we were in the same classes. How? What elements of Purchase did you feel, besides, you know, the curriculum, what we were um, learning in classes, best um, developed you as a writer and as a teacher? So my experience with Purchase was very weird. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, a transfer student, so I did my first two years at Monroe Community College. And my first year at Purchase, my, what is that, junior year, it was all on Zoom because we were in COVID. So... That year was just so hard to build any sense of community um, and nothing against the professors because the professors were doing everything they could, but it definitely didn't feel like it would have been the same experience as if we were in person, right? Um, my last year, my senior year, which was when we had a lot of classes together, I think, I think maybe half of my classes were in person and half of them were still on Zoom. So again, it still was kind of this muddied, everyone's struggling, we're trying our best, let's see what happens. Um, so part of me is a little disappointed in some of my experience. But also when I was at Purchase, I had the opportunity for my senior project for the second semester of my senior year, I produced a play that I wrote and I was able to get student actors involved. 
I got some directing experience. I got to know quite a few professors on campus who just kind of taught me little things so that I could keep going with the project. And I think that that was really my highlight at Purchase was the fact that I had space and I had people who were willing to work with me. And I was very transparent and I've never produced a play before. I don't know what I'm doing. We're figuring it out together. <laughs> and uh, I made some really great friends by doing that. And it helped me develop my play. Now I have a video of a play that I've produced. Um, so that was really like, that was my highlight of purchase. Everything else was a struggle. <laughs> I am so sorry you came at the, at the worst possible time uh, during the Zoom times. I wish you could have experienced more purchase, honestly. That's yeah. Zoom Zoom was Zoom Zoom sucked. Zoom class sucked. Um two parties what was so disappointing was that it wasn't even necessarily the quality of the content we were learning, but just because so many people were having a hard time during COVID, either with family, with work, whatever was going on, that <laughs> Everything was so lenient. It was like, turn things in if you can, turn them late if you have to. Um, maybe we'll get to this, maybe we won't. And it's just because I didn't feel like the students, myself included, could put in our all, it kind of <laughs> diminished oh, the waste. value, I think, that we got out of it. Yeah. But great people still. <laughs> in a tough time. Yeah. She said you uh, had a video of the play you produced. Is it on YouTube? It is on YouTube. Yes. It's called No Clean Clothes. And uh, that's a really vague thing. So if you search that, I don't know if it will pop up immediately. But if you search my name, too, I'm sure you'd find it. All right. Well, there's a link and I'll put it in uh, the description in this episode. So let's just go back to you as um, a teacher, Miss, before we move on. I just have more questions for you. So as you've continued to teach uh, students and oversee workshops, what have you learned uh, about yourself? So one skill that I pride myself on is the ability to pivot in a new direction very quickly because I have had workshops where either I'll have a whole lesson plan ready and I'll walk in and the students will be not where I expected them to be. I guess, let me give a, a better example. I taught a workshop over the summer. It was a playwriting workshop for third through fifth graders. And when I got to the workshop, I realized that the majority of the class did not know how to read and did not know how to write. And I did not know how to teach a playwriting workshop <laughs> for kids who couldn't read or write. And so immediately, even though I had a whole week of lesson plan ready, I kind of had to scrap the lesson plan. I really had to pay attention to where they were at and what they were interested in and find activities that were at their level that they could accomplish, but also were a little bit challenging to them. Challenging to the point where they're still engaged and they have to work towards something, but not so far off that it's completely out of reach. There's no way that group could have written their own play, like sat down and wrote it and then performed it in that week. But we found ways to still incorporate their creativity, still have them do an element of performance, things that they can be proud of because it was work that they created, but was still achievable for that time frame and for that group of kids. Um, and I mean, that's, that's kind of a more extreme example. I also like for any age group, when I start a workshop, I ask them what they want to learn. And sometimes I might scrap a couple activities that I had planned because I want to make sure that they also get what they want out of this class. And if there's a certain element of writing that they want to talk about or they want to learn more about, then I will absolutely accommodate that to make sure that, you know, they're getting something that they expected out of it. Does that mean I scrapped the whole lesson plan? No, because sometimes you don't know what you want to learn until it's presented to you, right? But I, I do like to kind of keep an open mind. My lesson plans aren't the law. 
I change them very frequently as I'm teaching. And usually those choices are for the best because it ends up engaging a lot better. Uh, not being able to read or write, that's honestly a scary thing when you're not able to do that. And just to see those kids have that, have that inability to do either and have to do a scrapulous plan, just start and just take it back to the Springer Square One. That that had yeah. to have been quite the challenge, because <laughs> yeah. sometimes were, I didn't know how we were going to get through the week. Oh man! But yeah, yeah. But you know, you you found a way to um, figure it out, and you were still able to continue teaching the magic of playwriting. So you know, through these challenges, you're learning something new about yourself, and these kids are learning something new, and even about themselves. So it's just, just good vibes going all around. I see it. Uh, but now I just want to transition to just um, writing um, in general. So Missy, like I said um, previously, you are in the like capital state, the state of, of writers, New York. So whether upstate or in the city, um, New York city, there's just, New York has just such a, such an amazing history uh, with, um, with authors and playwrights. So how do you view uh, just being in New York with such an uh, influential place and just the publishing uh, capital, really, of, this co- of the country? As I said earlier, I live in Rochester, New York, which is more so Western New York. And it is very far away from New York City. It's like five hours, more, apparently a little more than five hours away. Um, So, yes, New York is kind of the hub of a lot of the literary world, but upstate New York feels very distant from New York City in a lot of ways. I think that for me, I'm involved in a lot of local organizations, both theater companies, literary centers, um, just different nonprofits that acknowledge that. And I mean, I'm on the board of Breadcrumbs Productions in Syracuse, and their whole mission is creating paid opportunities for artists in upstate New York so that artists don't feel like they have to go live in New York city and work three or four jobs just to hopefully maybe get their big break. Right. So I love where I live because, you know, there's a small publishing house, a couple blocks away from me that I work at. There's a nonprofit literary center, also a few blocks away from me that I've taught at before. There's a theater company an hour away that I've taught for. There's, you know, there's a lot going on with Buffalo and Syracuse and Rochester so close together. But it definitely doesn't have that New York City vibe to it. It feels a lot more hometown. Everybody in this community who's literary community, theater community kind of knows each other. Um, It feels a lot homier than I feel like the New York City vibe gives. Um, but there's still opportunity, and it's really great to not be starving in New York City and still have those chances. Yes, nobody wants to be starving in New York City. That is a fact. But community, there it is again. You know, it's just that this community where people are, whether it's just local or just in other cities, just we all just got to come together um, and just share that passion, that love for creative writing, the love for literature. And so let's see, how have you seen community shaping you as a writer and as a person? I know it's brought you to be, you know, a teaching artist where you're able to, you know, just inspire that same passion in others, but just in you individually, never mind being a, being a mentor. Yeah, I think that I'm really blessed to have some really close friends who are also writers. And part of that whole holding myself accountable thing is good to have them around. Like, I can call my friend who lives down the road and say, Hey, do you want to go sit at this coffee shop for an hour with me and work on writing? And it's so helpful to have someone to just kind of sit there with you while you're working on it to make sure you're not checking your phone and like doing the dishes or whatever it may be. Right. I think that having so many people close to me that I can reach out to 
or even say like, hey, I'm having trouble with my play. Can I just talk through what I'm struggling with? And I have so many people who would say, absolutely, let's go grab a coffee and talk about it. Let's go sit on my porch and talk about it, right? Um, It's so important because even though it is kind of an isolating thing to work on a writing project, because of the workshopping experience, because of this like accountability buddy system. And then once you get into publishing all the different people that are involved in that process, it's really not an individual thing at the end of the day. Yeah, it's truly amazing. You, we brought up coffee shops. It makes me laugh because, like, that's one of the main places that authors go to to write. That and like libraries. And where else do you think do authors like find themselves at when writing? I just think those two. I like that's to it, sit huh? <laughs> on the porch yes. or something. Anyways, random question: Do you like uh, music while you write, or do you not like music? So for me, usually I will find like a soundtrack. Usually it's a gaming soundtrack. I don't know why, but if I'm working on a play, I have one soundtrack that I always go to while I write that play. Then if I'm working on a novel, I have a different soundtrack I listen to. So I have certain music that's associated with the project I'm working on. I don't just like turn on the radio or something random. It's very specific to get me back in that mindset of where I left off. Yeah, no, it's hard to it's hard to write while I'm like listening to freaking Ice Spice or something or <laughs> or Drake. I don't know. It's 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 hard. It's, it's you know it's it's so funny that we all have a different tastes in music and writing. Some people prefer just absolute silence. Like chilling like complete dead silence and some blast heavy metal music to each his own yes but this time as a writer is it's such a fascinating time to be um just a writer period not even an author not even a playwright and i want to go into um some of your um playwriting work um a little bit if that's mentioned that part but you know I know you've seen the the news of the lawsuit that authors are filing against uh, OpenAI uh, for just a take on uh, what they say like an attack on on their work on their on their copyrighted um, copyrighted books and works. So with AI coming into the picture, I know you've thought about it, uh, Misty. How do you <laughs> intend to you know continue on and uh, protect your work? During times of uh, artificial intelligence, or even if you see artificial intelligence uh, as a viable threat, yeah. So for me, I'm trying not to worry about it right now. I have really appreciated other people's opinions, like just hearing out how other people are interpreting it. I have had some people tell me that they feel like this is almost like a chance for their big break, which was not at all what I was expecting from that. I've had other people tell me that they think that this is an opportunity because of, you know, the writer's strike and so many people who have so many different changing, switching gears, that this is a chance for new voices to come out. And that was also something I wasn't expecting. Um, I also see, you know, professors who I'm friends with on Facebook who are really struggling because their students turn in a writing assignment and they don't know if the student wrote it or if it's AI, right? And so I feel like this is a lazy answer, but I really haven't formed enough of an opinion around it. I'm just kind of sitting quietly by and listening to what other people's perspectives are to try to understand it a little bit better. I understand. I understand. At times, I seem a bit uh, pretty murky to really be able to decide um, whether or not it's serious. It's like really serious of concern, or it's not that um, not that bad. But some people saying that this is their big break. That is, I would not expect that answer either, because I've seen so many writers who are like genuinely scared of AI. At once, say that Terminator is starting to feel more like a documentary, which is, uh, I don't think it's going to be, um, 
that serious, but it is definitely, definitely, I can definitely understand where um, his fear is coming from. Uh, so now I just want to move on to talking about Ryan's period. And I want to just go into your field of playwriting before we close out, uh, Missy. Because playwriting, as we both know, is totally different from from writing prose or poetry or anything. So what have you enjoyed most about um, switching to this, uh, to this, to the world of playwriting? Yeah, I would say it really depends on the idea. So I write a lot of fiction. I write a lot of plays. When I come up with a new idea, it's very clear to me if it's supposed to be a play or if it's supposed to be fiction. I can't tell you why, but I just know it in my heart. Like, ooh, this is going to be a play, right? Um, and right now, I, I actually recently received a grant through Genesee Valley Council of the Arts um, as an individual artist to produce a play, which is really funny because I wrote up this gorgeous description of the play and how it has these community aspects and how it's going to be this great thing. And they gave me this grant and I was like, Oh my gosh, the play is not good though. Like the actual play is not good. And so it's been an interesting process of going back in and revising it to really make it what I want it to be. And part of this process is by producing it, learning how to fix it. If that makes sense, I feel like in fiction, if you write something and then you publish it, ideally, you're not going to take your published book and say, let me revise this again, right? But with a play, it feels like a lot more of a living document where I can promise you after we put up this play, I'm going to open the document again and revise it like wholeheartedly because by visualizing it and seeing it live in front of me, I feel like it's going to open a lot more doors of opportunities of things I want to explore in the story, which to me feels very different than, than fiction in a lot of ways. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, it does. But congratulations on that, on that grant first off. Being able to produce that play. It's, plays have had such a that's an incredible impact on society. And going all the way back to like the Shakespearean era and to now where we have Broadway and all the plays that go on tour around the world. I mean, random question. What's your favorite play? I can't answer that question. <laughs> One specific. Um, I mean, I knew a couple plays earlier. There's a lot that I like a lot, but I don't think I have. I couldn't say a favorite. Oh man. Yeah. Well. Huh. Come to think of it, I don't know if. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure, really too sure if I have one either. Oh well. That's. We'll worry about that some other day. Uh, but when you're you're going through like different formats of writing and seeing different ways of how to tell a story. Cause that's what we've talked about before. There's no one single way there's it's writing is a blank canvas. You just go at the, at the way you see, you see fits. That's why we have so many different styles, so many different authors who've just surprised us. So as you continue to write plays and write fiction, how do you see, have you ever tried, because now, now you got me thinking of another question. Have you, is it going through different, different uh, going through your plays, going through your, um, through your fiction, have you ever tried to like experiment at all with like different styles or different POVs and try to tell a better story? Yeah, my, my senior project at Purchase, my novella that I wrote, that piece was through three different point of view. One of them was second person. I'm pretty sure. So what I think I had first person and second person, but there were two different first person point of views and then one second person point of view. And I remember showing this project to one of my really close writer friends and she was just appalled. She's like, you've broken all of these rules. You can't do this. <laughs> but I think that that's, 
that's the beauty of writing, just like you just said. Like, once you understand the rules, break them and just see what happens. Like, yeah. am I 100% set on leaving it? Not necessarily, but I think that it was worth trying just to experiment and see what happens with the characters and what happens in the story once I did it. I don't regret it at all, but no, was it the best? Writers, Maybe not. <laughs> writer rules are always made for breaking. Like, you're supposed to literally break free. Just, like, do what you know would work, even might work. Like, even if you're sure, like, this might work, just go for it. My gosh, she was appalled. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, absolutely not. You can't do that. <laughs> but... Yeah, I don't know. It's just funny. That is, that is hilarious. So, all right. Now let's just get ready to close that messy. So, you know, would you – I got two um, – last two questions for you. Uh, sure. Given your experience in, you know, overseeing uh, workshops and giving feedback, could you see yourself becoming, like, a professor uh, or just some – or just further, like, a school teacher? Um what after uh, in the uh, in the future? I don't think so. So teaching artistry, I'm involved in a couple different kind of like teaching artist cohorts where we talk a lot about how teaching artistry is kind of an emerging field. It's very different than being like a school teacher or a professor because teaching artists are artists who are teaching their craft. But there's always kind of a bigger picture to it. So when I was first kind of learning a little bit more about this craft, it was really emphasized to me like, yeah, maybe you're doing a workshop on dialogue, for example. The workshop might not necessarily be about dialogue. Like, what is the bigger picture? What is the theme that you are trying to incorporate in this workshop? Like, sure, someone can walk away knowing a little bit more about craft. But at the end of the day, why does that matter, right? And so I really love the fact that I can create my own lesson plans, that I don't have a school district or a state telling me what I'm supposed to teach kids and why they should care. I get to create my own lesson plans, and I also get to adapt them. And I adapt them pretty much every time I teach because the kids are teaching me at the same time what they want to learn, what things they feel like they're falling short the things they don't understand. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think I ever can imagine myself kind of in this, like under a university or under a public school. I think that freelancing and kind of going to where the kids are and creating lessons based on that is more so where my passion is. I understand. I understand. Totally. Doing on this field as an artist, it's always so challenging and there's, always so many different ways that you can find yourself falling into a trap, honestly, because we both know being a writer is a risky sort of uh, career field because you can produce something. This is where my last question comes. You can produce something phenomenal and still like make little from it, you know? So, that once in a lifetime chance where you can build like a franchise out of what you write. So, Misty, I gotta I gotta ask you as you continue down this field, you know, when you get something uh, published or you know set up for uh, brought set up for you know a play, like how are some of the ways you you tend to sustain yourself? Just the ways to you can to make money and stay um, financially stable while continuing to do what you love. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the teaching artistry gets me by. <laughs> also, um, I do work part-time, again, for the Hudson Valley Writers Center, which is remote and is such a blessing because it's on my own schedule. And so I am actively pursuing creative opportunities that are outside of my writing that are still with organizations that I'm passionate about or teaching lessons that I'm passionate about because I worked in food service for seven years. I managed for four of them. 
it, it was it was so bad for my mental health. It was so bad. And so I realized if I really want to pursue a creative career, I need to get away from all these things that aren't aligning with my purpose and what I want in life and really just dive into the things I want. And thankfully, again, I, I had these relationships with the Hudson Valley Writers Center and I had enough people to help me kind of network myself locally to find groups that wanted a teaching artist to come in and work with kids and work with adults that those opportunities fund me financially where I think that if I ever was financially dependent on my writing, that would take my writing away from me. It would make me feel like I have to generate material for the sake of an income and not because I have something to say. And I don't ever want to get to that point because I don't think it's, doing myself justice. And I remember you telling us about your time uh, in food service that the patrons would just say nasty things to you and just and all the stress that came from it. Food service is truly not for everyone. It is I not. Don't think for anyone. <laughs> it's, it's it's not I I mean, uh, it, it, my bills, it... I worked the same company seven years and I moved up in the company. I did all the things I was supposed to do, but the customers are brutal. The <laughs> corporate mindset is brutal. It's just, it, the hours were brutal. It wasn't, it wasn't good. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm really glad you got out of that misty and you were able to be in a much more soothing sort of atmosphere where you're not going completely insane. Uh, but yeah, now you're now you're doing amazing things. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes episode forty six of the upcoming. I want to give another big thank you to my guest Missy for coming on and sharing your stories, your insight, your everything with us. Thanks, John. All right, folks. So. That's it for episode 46. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. And be sure to continue to follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, Podcasts, all that jazz. And yeah, just stay tuned for our episodes. We got another one coming up. And so, you know, it's just things only get better from here. And yeah, just follow us. Just stay tuned for our episodes. All right. We got more amazing guests like Misty coming up, folks. So that being said, good night. Thank you for tuning in to the upcoming. If you like this, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at the underscore upcoming podcast. The best yet to come. Take care, everybody.